Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, and we really appreciate you joining us today. We are here to help you explore and understand the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, themes like climate change, plastics contamination, heat waves, and other extreme weather events and other themes will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, indigestion and gut health, cancers, uh, lung health and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts in scientific research on the natural health and environmental worlds. So let's jump in. Today, the majority of people across the world think that climate change is happening and that humans are at least partly responsible for that. According to a study that was uh, done by YouGov uh, and was released a few months ago, they found that 15% of Americans, though, still hold views that contradict the scientific consensus that climate change is occurring, that it's being driven by human behavior. 6% of American respondents denied that climate change is is happening, while an additional 9% said the climate is changing, but that human activity is not at all responsible. Americans surveyed held these denialist views more than people in 27 other countries uh, included in the study. Actually, only Saudi Arabia at 16% and Indonesia at 18% had higher proportions of people doubtful of man-made climate change. And so today, our guest is going to help us unpack this. Our guest today is Andrew Dessler. He is currently a professor of Atmospheric Sciences and holder of the Rita A. Haynes Chair in Geosciences at Texas A&M University. Professor Dessler's educational background includes a BA in physics from Rice University. He is a native Texan, by the way, and a PhD in chemistry from Harvard. He indeed is a climate scientist who studies both the science and the politics of climate change. And that's why we have him here today. His scientific research revolves around climatic feedbacks and in particular how water vapor and clouds act to amplify warming from the carbon dioxide that the humans emit. So as we jump into this, some of the work that has directed us to Professor Dessler. He's done three books, or two books, and then one in um, partnership with another scientist. His book, The Chemistry and Physics of uh, Stratospheric Ozone, as well as his book, The Science and Politics of Global Change, a guide to the the, uh, debate, really helps to inform our discussion and our understanding. So, Professor Dessler, what is climate change And as we talked, it's used interchangeably with global warming, and hopefully people do understand that. But what is it that we need to know about it? Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me on here. Um, And yes, uh, global warming and climate change, I use them interchangeably. I think, um, you know, they they basically mean the same thing to me. Um, So 
So what you need to understand about climate change is that climate, the set of weather that you can have. So weather means the exact state of the atmosphere at any given time, and the climate determines what kinds of weather you can have. So during the summer in Texas, the available or the possible climates are all very hot. During winter, they're cooler. And when climate changes, what that means is the weather you can have also changes because, uh, you know, climate is this envelope that all the weather has to fall into. And so the, as we add carbon to the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, that traps heat, that makes the climate warmer. So you're going to experience warmer temperatures. You're going to experience more intense heat waves. Uh, then the warmer temperatures have knock-on effects. They change things like rainfall patterns, amount of rainfall. So as the climate warms, you tend to get more extreme rain events where it rains really hard. Um, sea level rises, and there's a whole host of, of other impacts that go along with the warming temperatures. Okay. So the, 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 the weather changes, the sea level rises, and that's going to affect really all other aspects of our, of our being and our life, right? Yeah, that's right. So we rely on the stability of the climate for our very existence. And what's happened in modern society is that a lot of these connections are obscured because, you know, you go to the store, there's food on the shelves, uh, you flip the light switch, you get power, uh, the weather is... Um, you know, all of these ways that we rely on the weather, uh, we just don't see them in our modern society. But make no mistake, for everything from fresh water availability to food on the table, um, we rely on, uh, on a stable climate for all of those things. And as the climate changes, uh, that's going to create problems. So what is it that you as scientists see, and then what is it that we as everyday citizens see that let us know indeed it is changing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, as scientists with global data sets, we can measure extremely small changes in the climate, so year-to-year variability in temperature of just a few hundredths of a degree. And individual people can't see that. Like, you don't notice that last year was a few hundredths of a degree cooler than this year. Those, those yes, kind of changes are, are completely, you know, undetectable. What, what individual people notice are when the temperature changes over a very long time and passes some threshold. So, for example, you don't notice the temperature is getting warmer every year. Because of that, heat waves get a little more extreme until something happens. Like one day you'll notice your window air conditioner unit isn't strong enough to cool your room. And you think, wow, that's never happened before. Or during intense rainfalls, your house suddenly starts flooding. Rivers overflow that never overflowed before. You think, wow, that's weird. And we don't realize that the water in the river was rising over time. Every time it rained, the water level would go a little bit higher. And you didn't notice that until it overflowed its banks. And then all of a sudden, you have this threshold change. That's what people notice. So anytime you hear somebody say, you know, wow, this has never happened before, uh, you know, that's a symptom of climate change. Now, as scientists, though, we can track these very small changes over time that are driving these threshold phenomenon. So we we have a really clear picture of what's going on, even if individuals don't necessarily see that. I would say that the talk that I hear um, from my colleagues centers around these extreme weather events. Um, the, 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 the rains are getting harder. The floods are getting more often. The snowstorms are getting heavier, etc. I imagine that there's a lot of data about that. Does your data show what we feel or what we think? 
Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, Houston has a 500-year flood every year, it seems. Um, and, what that, and, and, and what's amazing about that is that people see these flood events. They see flood levels that hadn't occurred before. Now, as scientists, we can look at um, rainfall extremes, and we see that extreme rainfall has been increasing over time. And, and to most people, you don't notice it until it floods your neighborhood. And then, you know, it goes up above. You get slightly just enough rain for the water to overflow the bayous or the rivers or the lake or whatever it is. And it floods your neighborhood, and all of a sudden, you see, wow, it's happening. But we certainly see uh, extreme heat events going up. We certainly see extreme rainfall events going up in the data. So it's completely consistent with people's... Um, uh, intuition about what's happening. Professor Dessler, let me ask you, how do climate scientists like yourself interact or work with the weather people? Um, so the weather people, it's, it's really a different, um, you know, they're, they're, they're different problems, weather prediction sort of on short term and sort of the climate prediction that we do. Um, we certainly work together in the sense that the climate research informs weather people on how the climate's changing. So when they see these extreme rain, rain events, they understand the context of that. When they see extreme heat waves, again, they understand the context of these things. But, uh, you know, weather prediction and climate science are, are related. We both study the atmosphere, but we're working on different ends of the time spectrum. Yeah, we're thinking about 100 years. They're thinking about 100 hours. Okay. But back to the climate scientist, how far in or how current do you go are your predictions and do you study? Well, okay, so, so weather predictions go out a week, um, and then there's a, there's a scientific field called subseasonal to seasonal predictions. They try to make a prediction about whether the coming winter is going to be colder than average or warmer than average. Uh, those are also the people that try to predict El Nino events and then the knock-on effects from there. And then when you go out to multi-decadal time scales, that's really climate science. So we're making predictions out 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. We are going to go to a break, and we will come back shortly. I would like to do a, a shout-out to our sponsors. We are sponsored by EarthX, and they are the largest environmental experience in the world. That includes their annual expo and conference in April, as well as EarthX Film, which operates year-round. They do these extraordinary movies called Movie Monday. Um, check out their website at earthx.org. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings Magazine. Uh, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and the North Texas communities. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. Okay, we're back with you. Thank you so much, Professor Dessler. I want to find out and have you talk to us about what you see as the most profound manifestations or impacts right now and in the near future of climate change? I think that the answer to that depends on where you are. If you're in Alaska, they're seeing extremely rapid warming, and with that come all of the knock-on effects from that. Sea ice is retreating, all the permafrost in Alaska is melting. So just to give you some background, um, you know, permafrost is essentially frozen soil, and it's like concrete. And so a lot of stuff is just built on permafrost with the idea that it's never going to melt, it's permanently frozen, hence the name permafrost. Um, and so you just build stuff on it, houses, roads, anything you want. 
And as that melts, all of this infrastructure there, you know, a road built on permafrost, as the permafrost melts, the road buckles. And so they're having a lot of real problems with melting, uh, melting permafrost, causing infrastructure problems, causing changes in um, um, cultural, uh, the way, way people live. You know, a lot of the indigenous tribes rely on sea ice for their lives. And as that retreats, it, it forces them to change, um, uh, you know, their cultures, and their traditions. In addition, uh, as the sea ice goes away, that means waves can erode the land. So a lot of these towns are in danger of literally falling into the sea. Um, if you live on the Texas Gulf Coast, there's a whole different set of impacts. We're extremely vulnerable to extreme sea level events from things like hurricanes. Um, in the interior of Texas, we're um, vulnerable to extreme temperatures. Um, all through Texas, we're vulnerable to extreme rainfall events. So climate change, again, we rely on weather and climate for our very existence. And as it changes, the way we're adapted to climate change is no longer going to be optimal. And it's going to cause big problems. And, um, you know, we're already seeing, you see those in many, many places around the globe. But the exact impacts depend on where you are and how you rely on the climate. What does it look like for the uh, Washington, D.C. area? I want to know how it looks like for our legislators. What, what, what can they see or not see? Um, you know, I, I predict <laughs> a lot of money heading their way from fossil fuel companies to stop action on climate change. I mean, I think that's, that's the only, the, the, the money climate is the only one they really care about for a lot of legislators. Um, as far as the actual, if you're asking me li- literally what's going to happen to the weather in Washington, right. you know, it's going to get hotter. Um, it's going to, um, uh, I haven't really looked at the exact predictions for it, but, you know, it's going to be a more miserable place in the sense that it's going to be hotter, it's going to be muggier in the summer, um, winters will probably be less intense, um, all sort of the typical things you'd expect from sort of a coastal, coastal city. So let me ask you something that I, I've always wondered about. Everything is getting warmer, yet the winter storms seem to be getting more acute or they're changing. What's, talk to us about that a little bit. What's Right. Just because the climate is changing doesn't mean we've canceled winter. So it's still <laughs> going to get cold in the winter. You're still going to get cold snaps. Uh, but the cold snaps aren't as cold as they used to be. Um, so you're going to be you're going to get less. Just like you get more, uh, you get more heat waves and more extreme heat waves. You're going to get less extreme uh, cold waves. But you're still going to get cold waves. So the existence of of snow, existence of big storms in the winter time, that doesn't really, you know, that's still going to happen. And you might even still get periods of really cold temperatures, but they won't occur as frequently. And they won't be as bad as uh, on a, on sort of average as they as they would have been in the past. Okay, and I neglected to mention um, when I did your introduction too the fact that you you during the last year of the Clinton administration that you did serve as a senior policy analyst um, in the White House Office of Science and Technology. So you've got a lot of experience with this as well as as um, as a policy um, of these issues. So let me ask you this. What can we do now? What do you see as, one, the most critical and, two, the most impactful thing that everyday people can do, including the the policy parts of it? Right. So there are different ways to answer that question. So if you ask from a physics standpoint, um, what we need to do is stop emitting greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. I mean, that, in some sense, that's the solution. There's really no other solution and it's really that. Um, in order to do that, what we really need to do is rebuild 
um, our energy infrastructure system. You know, right now we get 80% of our energy from fossil fuels, and we need to reduce that to 0%, and we need to do that over a few decades. Um, and so then the question that you're really asking me is sort of as individuals, how do you do that? You know, how do we, how do we encourage the, the, our system to rebuild ourselves using renewable energy? And the answer is, um, you know, you've got to become politically active, at least vote. I mean, if you care about climate, vote for politicians that reflect what your values on that issue. Um, and, you know, if you really care a lot about it, then get involved. You know, volunteer for politicians, write letters, write op-eds. Um, that's the only thing to do. Certainly, people should make virtuous choices. You know, you should walk instead of drive, you know, install energy-efficient lighting in your house, maybe eat less red meat. I mean, there are lots of individual things you can do that will save you money and will be good for you. You know, walking makes you healthier. Um, but... In, in the end, those are not the solution to the problem. Um, the solution to the problem is to um, replace the people in Washington and in the Texas legislature, if you care about Texas or whatever state legislature you're in, replace them with people who want to do something about climate. I mean, that's, that's fundamentally, fundamentally the problem. And part of that uh, goes to replacing sort of this idea we have that the government should not be involved in um, the economy. I mean, that you, climate change is a side effect of the lack of government involvement. I mean, the government is really the only way to solve this problem because the system will not, the free market will not switch us from fossil fuels to renewable energy anytime soon. And so it's really, it's going to have to be some sort of government policy, whether a carbon tax or a cap and trade or something like that. And so people have to recognize that, that our choice is between having government policy or having climate change. You know, you can say, I want the government to stay out of my life. Well, in that world, you're going to have a lot of climate change. And so, uh, you know, so, so it's a, I think it's also part of a fundamental rethinking of, you know, whether government intervention in these markets, you know, governments essentially playing referee in markets is acceptable or not. Yeah, and that's also part of their role is to do those large things to encourage or incentivize the thing that's going to be best for the overall economy, our overall society. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, we didn't say, well, we'll let the market solve this. You <laughs> yeah, know, the, exactly. And, and this is, it's sort of a similar, it, we're in a similar situation now. You know, we're not being attacked by people, but uh, we're, in, we're in every bit, I think, as, as dire a situation. It, it reminds me of a, a discussion I heard not too long ago, even like uh, with vaccines. You know, the, the public health had to had to be put first and center for there to be policies and rules and regulations about vaccination of, of children and people. That's right. And the, and the government does this all the time. You know, you can't drive 60 miles an hour through a neighborhood. There are speed limits. And the reason they do that is um, because they judge that some infringement on your, your liberty of driving as fast as you want is um, outweighed by sort of public safety. And, you know, you can't smoke in restaurants. There are, lots of, there are lots of ways that this is true, and people just have to recognize that this is something that's going to have to happen if you want to solve climate change. If you say, I don't want the government to intervene in any way to solve this problem, um, then, you're going to, then the climate's going to change. It's going to change a lot, and people will be much worse off. And that's why, that's why we're here. That's the purpose of our show, is to cause people or help people to understand the impact 
and why it's important to them. And one of the primary reasons it is important to them is their health. It's really important to them for their overall well-being and their existence. But health is something that's very, very primary. It's one of those kitchen table issues. But let me go back for a moment and, and, and have you talk about the fact that Texas is fossil fuel central, but we are also one of the biggest producers of wind energy, which is interesting. So we could benefit either way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that if you were a, um, if you were a forward-looking leader in the state right now, you would say the days of fossil fuels are numbered. And we want to get out in front of this and, um, and you know, become, become the Saudi Arabia of wind and, you know, generate um, the business, you know, have the businesses here that are selling technology to the rest of the world. And, and I would just sort of also add to that, if you ask the question, why do we get so much wind energy, it was because of uh, state government action. It wasn't the free market. It was Rick Perry, when he was the governor, he invested a lot of money to build these wind transmission lines uh, to build the infrastructure. That ERCOT? Um, yeah, that's, I can't remember what it's called, um, but it's, it's part of ERCOT. So ERCOT is our energy grid, and there's this right. name for the energy, the, the wind, the, the power lines that run from West Texas to the big um, uh, urban centers. And essentially that's why we generate a lot of energy. It was the government, is government action. It wasn't the free market that did it. The free market has sort of uh, worked with the government. It wasn't completely government action, but without the investment by the government, we wouldn't have all this wind energy. So it shows you the key role that that government action can play in helping us solve these problems and in making us better off. That's a perfect example of what we were discussing. They took the action and they made something happen. Well, hopefully uh, in a few years, uh, Texas can be held out as the model of how you can get more involved in renewable energy. Because uh, that was very forward. It's it's kind of been put on the back burner right now, but we still have it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Professor Dessler. We really appreciate your your help today. You're helping to enlighten us uh, on your, your work that you've done on climate change. Um, we could not have had such a, uh, an in-depth discussion, I think, on the policy as well as how it affects us here in Texas without you. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Take care. Okay, again, we want to thank our sponsors. That is EarthX. EarthX is the world's largest environmental experience, including their annual expo and conference in April. Uh, as well as the EarthX Film Organization, which operates year-round. They have these wonderful Movie Mondays. Please check out their website, earthxfilm.org, to get a schedule of those. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine. They are the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and the North Texas communities. We thank our sponsors. Thank you for joining us for the second part of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're now going to talk about the effects of climate change and the environment on gut health. You know, climate change, one of the most important environmental issues facing the contemporary world, has significant impacts on biodiversity. So whether you are a climate denier or supporter, the role of humans in climate change, there's no doubt that the Earth's temperature is rising. 
And although rising global temperatures are known to directly affect biodiversity, there's now emerging evidence that they also have indirect effects by disrupting that symbiotic relationship that some species have with their gut bacteria. And so we want to examine that and unpack it a little bit with our next guest, who is Dr. Alfred I. Johnson. He is a DO, and Dr. Johnson, again, is a doctor of internal medicine with a special interest in the area of chronic illnesses, allergy, and environmental medicine. He is currently in private practice at Johnson Medical Associates and Hyperbaric Centers of Texas. That's here in Richardson, Texas. And he served a six-year term on the Texas State Board of Medical Examiners, which is a 15-member governing body for physicians in the state of Texas. Dr. Johnson also holds memberships in the American Public Health Association, the American College of Allergists, and the American College of Allergy and Immunology. He is a fellow of the Academy of Disability Evaluating Physicians. So thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for helping us out and being with us today. We really could not do it without you. We appreciate you helping us to to unpack our mission, which, of course, is to educate, empower, and inspire people by helping them to understand that unbreakable relationship between our health, our environment, and our planet. So, Dr. Johnson, can you start us out by telling us about the impacts of the gut on one's health? Well, the gut is very important in our health. Uh, First of all, thanks for inviting me and having me on. Uh, It's the passage where we absorb food, nutrients, and then excrete toxins uh, that is processed by the liver. Uh, The nerve that goes to the gastrointestinal tract is the largest nerve in the body, and it has both uh, input and output uh, from the brain. So the brain helps regulate the whole system, and then there's feedback nerves that feed back to the brain from the gut, telling it to turn on or turn off these different systems. So there's a big symbiotic relationship between gut and brain, and then how well the gut works depends uh, on how good a health we have. Um, so that's those are important factors. So it's really not just the stomach, it's the stomach and all those other systems that go into it. Well, exactly, because when you eat food, say you eat, uh, say, tomatoes and put tomatoes in your mouth, uh, IgA, which is the um, part of the immune system, uh, protective immune system of the gut, says, hey, gut, here comes tomatoes. Prepare for tomatoes. And so that protects your body from actually becoming allergic to that food product. Uh, and that system needs to be intact. If it gets overloaded or damaged, then that's when people start developing gastrointestinal problems, allergic reactions um, that you hear many people complain about. Well, recently or today, I see a couple of words thrown about a lot that I'd like you to explain. Microbiome and microbiota, if that's stated correctly. I I see those words a lot. Yes, with with current technology, uh, researchers and doctors are able to 
uh, actually look at the DNA of the different organisms that's in your gut, in your intestinal tract. And uh, there are healthy ones, and then there's non-healthy ones, but the range of those may vary within individuals depending upon where they come from, what their ancestry ate, what their genetics allow, uh, and how their genetics work. Uh, Just an example of which I think most people are familiar with is gluten uh, intolerance or celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. Yes. And gluten is a product that's in all grains except corn and rice. And now we can genetically look at that individual and tell whether they are genetically predisposed to gluten sensitivity versus a combination of being a little more sensitive where they have one gene for celiac and one gene for sensitivity or whether they have both genes for celiac. These people that have both genes may not have symptoms, but when the right conditions come along, it will stimulate that whole celiac process. So it really helps us in medicine to kind of understand how the individual is made and then what we need to caution them uh, about doing or activities or what foods they're eating to have the best health. And I was just reading that as many as uh, about 70 million Americans suffer from some type of uh, gastrointestinal issues with things like you just mentioned, celiac, allergies, and irritable bowel syndrome, which we hear a lot about lately. And it seems like uh, up until recently that a lot of these issues had been largely confined to to our American population, um, I guess because we have so much junk food in our diets and hygiene-obsessed lifestyles. However, this seems to be spreading now across the developing world. And there seems to be a consensus that that climate change is altering, of course, our weather and our food supply, and that's having that impact on messing up our bio uh, microbiomes or our, our stomachs. Yes, and I think a lot of that has to do with what is added to the food, okay. the additives, so that when you have packaged food, uh, they put additives in to make it last longer and so forth. Well, no one has really studied how those things affect the gut, the gut integrity, uh, so that uh, many of them affect how the body responds to the foods that it's in. Uh, Years ago, when we were direct farmers and went directly from the field to consumption, uh, we didn't have all those additives. And... Therefore, we didn't have all these these different problems. Now we see that it does, and when you know most of your intake of liquids is say soda pop, there's all kinds of things and chemicals in in th- that type of liquid. Exactly. Um, I think too that may be where just calling upon the conversation we just had with um, Professor Dessler, that may be where climate change comes in uh, also in terms of perhaps necessitating the need for some of the additives in order to get the food to us. Uh, Of course, urbanization has a lot to do with that also. But also having to do with the, the soil makeup and and um, the food that is produced, even the fresh foods that 
that is produced and that we eat without additives. I have to think that perhaps uh, those may be different due to climate change also and its effect on the soils and, and nutrients that go into yeah, the soil. Well, there's so many things that, that relate to the, to the soil, uh, whether it's uh, the temperature, the amount of cloudy days, on, on food growth, uh, moisture, uh, and then the nutrients and how they actually fertilize or what they actually use to fertilize. And then we got the whole controversy about GMO, genetically modified foods. Right. That, it just really gets to be complicated. Uh, so when I have patients that are really having GI problems, I try to have meat as natural a food as possible and then to stay away as much from the preservatives. And so it comes down to uh, a lot of times with vegetables and fruits, if you eat the frozen ones, they're processed the most quickly and then preserved in a natural way. Uh, so you don't have a bunch of other additives in it or they aren't picked early and then allowed to ripen uh, off the vine where we used to have go out to the garden, pick a tomato, it was you pick the ripe one, and that's what you got. Now they're picked green, and they ripen, um, quote ripen uh, as time passes. Okay. The another area I want you to comment on too is the fact that global warming is and will in the future cause shifts in the quantity, the frequency, the length, and the intensity of precipitation that we have. And again, that's that's not only affecting the food system. Um, it's also affecting the air quality and what's in the air. I have to wonder if that's uh, impacting things like uh, salmonella, E. coli, or something like that, uh, and how well, that might affect gut health. Yeah, I don't know that it'll help uh, that much from, from what's in the air because the gut is not affected too much by what's in the air uh, of our current knowledge. Okay. Now, the lungs are. And and so what you breathe in is very important because that's the quickest way to absorb a toxin is through the lungs. And so it gets uh, to the gut eventually anyway, right? We're going to well, have to go to break really quick, uh, Dr. Johnson, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to Healthy Living Healthy Planet Radio. Let's get started again. Um, as you were mentioning, though, you said that really what's in the air around us does not directly affect the gut a lot, but it does eventually flow there or get there? Uh, yes, because if you breathe in like toxic chemicals that get dissolved in the blood and then it's transported all over the body and can affect uh, body function. And it can affect the lungs, affect the GI tract, uh, and affect the, the brain, the nervous system. And a good example of that is um, mycotoxins. And mycotoxins are mold, neural toxins that are produced by mold. Okay. Um, and it can occur in grains. That and there's a lot of literature out there on animals and just mycotoxins. And then it can be present in tight indoor damp environments where mold grows that produces them. You breathe that in, and then it can affect the the whole person, where these people 
have trouble with thought processes, with memory, uh, with sleeping, with and a lot of them complain of gastrointestinal problems where the brain is not telling the stomach and the intestinal tract how to work. It, it sends improper messages or it's decreased in the amount of input it gets because of the toxicity. What about histamines? Is there a relationship? Uh, I'm told that a lot of allergens can cause uh, a production of histamine, and I would think, does that flow down to the gastrointestinal system? Yeah, it, it does, uh, because serotonin's also another neurotransmitter that's uh, big in the gut. And uh, yes, if you get a reaction... Uh, then histamine is released, and that can be where you get gut swelling or you get uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, where it's an allergic uh, reaction in the esophagus, and people have pain and difficulty in eating. Uh, and then the systemic effect of, say, foods that you're allergic to is like uh, asthma, anaphylaxis, hives, uh so I see that all the time where people will, will eat, like, say, corn and they get hives or you get, uh, you know, common is like shellfish where you get the uh, asthma or throat swelling and tightening. Mm, yeah, that's not good. Um, let me ask you, what are, just in terms of your practice or on the global stage or the regional stage, what are the major gut health issues that we are seeing today? Well, the, the major ones involve, uh, you know, pain, uh, cramping, um, diarrhea, constipation, and they may have a whole host of reasons for that. Uh, but it all involves the, what you put in your in your stomach, in your intestinal tract, and it may vary from individual to individual of what they either have been eating constantly or what they've put down there constantly, uh, that eventually they become sensitive to that and react to that. Uh, so it's, it varies with it, but it involves those basic body functions that really can cause lifestyle problems. Are you seeing anything where you may have people who've eaten a certain food all their lives and then... 20 years in or whatever, they're suddenly having some type of gastrointestinal problems caused by that oh, yes. same food? Yeah, that, that happens all the time. And sometimes it happens after a viral infection where you got viral gastroenteritis and that virus inflammation uh, affects the barrier that our intestinal tract naturally has and you actually absorb food products into your system, and you create an antibody uh, allergic response. And then after that event, then you continue to be uh, reactive to that particular substance that you absorbed uh, in the future. Are you seeing a correlation with those type of issues and GMOs? Uh, some people claim that. Uh, I have not done any studies, direct studies myself on it, but that is the concern uh, that uh, these genetically modified uh, foods may affect 
your normal natural defense mechanism. Just like they repel bugs uh, in the field, they're genetically engineered so that um, they don't have to use the pesticides that they use, but the, they change the genetic makeup of the food. Right, and just like so many other things in our our society and in our culture that were meant for good, we sometimes find out later on that they have these unintended consequences. I imagine. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think the good the recent example is just the vaping. You're breathing those chemicals in your lungs that no one's ever studied, and all of a sudden we have people dying because of lung disease. Yeah, that really came on really fast as well. I was uh, recently reading, though, um, in some research that I was doing, and I think you probably realize as well that there's just a lot of work that is yet to be done on the uh, environmental impacts uh, and the impacts of climate change on our good health. Uh, But the research acknowledged that uh, there's like 100 trillion microorganisms that cohabit within each of us every day, and that they, they play a critical role in maintaining health and preventing disease. But many factors can alter and interact with the microbiome, including nutrition, genetics, as well as the environmental exposures. And again, a lot of research is yet to be done um, on yeah, that. Exactly. We know there's a connection. <laughs> we just don't, all the research has not been done to, to make all those connections. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing you got to remember from the, the global warming aspect is is that the body does remain, uh, maintain a constant temperature inside. So whatever is outside temperature doesn't affect the inside of your gut to any any great extent. So it's the in my way of viewing it it's the effects of whatever foods produced, what outside extraneous environmental factors are that you ingest that are making the difference. It's what's going into that gut as well as uh, what the air quality or pollution or what's in the air does to the rest of the body, which then connects or flows into the gut. Exactly. So, yeah, that's what my research is saying. We, We know that there are impacts and effects. There's just not been uh the body of research done yet uh, to show a lot of the direct correlations. No, that's that's so true, and and uh, there's a lot of a lot of gut immunology that clinicians don't pay attention to that has been researched uh, and just not applied in medical practice. That's what I'm finding too, but a, a lot of it they're saying it's because there's not been a lot of it. Uh, just like with climate change, there had to be a groundswell of information before the, a lot of people begin to really say, oh, this really is a thing, an issue. And there's still deniers out there. So I think that's the, the way things move in our in our culture. But let me ask you this. How can people impact the environment or how can we impact environmental factors that affect gut health? How can we drive solutions? What are some of the things that we can do, you feel? Well, I think the, the public can, can demand uh, healthier food, food with less chemicals, less preservatives, uh, water that is uh, tested to make sure that it's safe uh, to drink, uh, that has less contaminants in it, uh, whether it's heavy metals or the, the chemicals that are added. 
that uh, does affect uh, the integrity of the intestinal tract. Yeah, water is a whole nother show. We're going to be doing uh, later on a whole month of shows on on water. There are so many climatic and environmental impacts or relationships with the water. Exactly, it's 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 amazing. But anything else you you, you feel that people need to know in, in terms of gut health, maintaining it, and things well, they should do. Yeah, I think you know don't overuse alcohol. Because alcohol is a solvent, and you absorb it directly uh, from the stomach. It carry, can carry other things with it, so and it affects the liver, so your liver doesn't detoxify well. So you, you want to be careful with the uh, alcohol intake. Um, don't eat repetitively if you tend to be one of those people that have intestinal problems. Uh, try to separate out the foods so, so you give your body at least a day's rest in between. Now, when you so say don't eat repetitively, you mean what? The same food repetitively. So you oh. don't want to eat corn every day, say. Oh, well, I eat eggs every day. I should not eat eggs every day? Well, <laughs> you run the potential, if you're one of those allergic people, building up a tolerance, uh, intolerance oh. to egg. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't – so diversify – yeah, so, you know, diversity is, is the, the key, and then try to separate it out so you don't eat it every day, so you give your bodies a, a rest from it. And those people that are really sensitive, we put them on what we call a four-day rotation diet, where they don't eat that food but once every four days. Okay. And that allows for the body to clear it, because usually the transit time from mouth out the bottom end is about 24 to 48 hours at the most it should be. Okay. And then it gives your body a two-day rest from it, and then you can reintroduce it. Well, I have learned something new today. And, Dr. Johnson, we really thank you and appreciate you for your contributions today, for being with us and helping to enlighten us on gut health, how it is impacted by the environment and climate change. And helping us to kind of talk through the fact, too, that there's just so much, much more research that needs to be done. Even though we know their impacts, there's a lot more work to be done. So thank you very much. We appreciate it. Exactly. And thank you for making people aware of what all can be done and what's going on and where the future lies. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for listening to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation has started here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, in your workplace, at the water cooler, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Thank you.